might find it helpful to have that passage uh, open in front of you. We're going to get a bit cultured this morning. Here are some uh, paintings by Claude Monet of Rouen Cathedral in France. He painted them uh, one by one, one after the other, for years in the 1890s. And what we have here is one building from many perspectives. Many pictures painting one place, each with its own nuances, each with its differences, but unmistakably the same. And what we have in the book of Revelation, as we've been seeing over the last few weeks, is almost the same thing. Many pictures, but one story, told over and over. The story ends, and then it starts again at the beginning, from another angle. You see, really, the book of Revelation is a bit like the roads around Otley. Why? It has a lot of cycles. You're going to be telling it later. <laughs> but Revelation 12, as we start Revelation 12, begins a new one. The story ended in Revelation 11. The final trumpet was sounded. The dead were judged. The kingdom of the world was said to have become the kingdom of Christ. And what we have there is that the world has ended for the second time in the book of Revelation. The first time it happened after the seven seals, and now it's happened after the seven trumpets. And what we have now is the beginning of a new section, a section of seven signs, which will take us up to the end of chapter 12. But this morning we're just going to be looking at the beginning of that series, and it really does take us back to the beginning of the gospel. We could almost do this passage, I reckon, for Christmas. Don't worry, we're not going to do it for Christmas. But you could do. Because the goal is the same as the rest of the book. It's there to teach us about Jesus. And to encourage and challenge the church to keep going through tough times. And to trust in God. So let's look at the first part of the vision. This vision is particularly weird, but I do think once you get the handle on it, it's a bit easier to understand than some of the others. A dragon tries and fails to eat a baby. <coughs> That's what we have in verses 1 to 6. Let me read them to you again. And a great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet. And on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns on his heads. Seven, and on his head seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars in heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, um, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness, where she had a place prepared by God, in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. This first part of the vision introduces the characters. Firstly, we have a pregnant woman dressed <coughs> in the sun. The moon is under her feet, and she has 12 stars around her head. Now, John doesn't directly tell us who this is, but there are some clues in the passage. The description John gives us has its roots, if you've been in the series, you might guess it, in the Old Testament. That's where lots of the imagery from uh, for Revelation comes from. The image is from uh, Genesis uh, 37, 
verses 9 to 11, it's Joseph. Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and eleven stars were bowing down to him. And when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said, What is this dream you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. Do you see that, how it's linked with the family of Jacob? It's linked there with the people of God in the Old Testament. We're also told that she gives birth to a male child, who, verse 5, was born to rule the nations with a rod of iron. That's another Old Testament reference back to Psalm 2, which is speaking about the Christ that was to come. In other words, the baby that is born is none other than Jesus Christ. So who then is the woman? Well, this is not Mary. That would be to ignore the Old Testament illusion. Though that's why Mary in Catholicism is often pictured uh, with 12 stars around her head. This is more the people of God more generally. This is God's people uh, represented <coughs> by this woman. Why a woman? Well, she has to give birth, so that's one reason. But also we're told, uh, we're going to get some uh, references back to Genesis in just a few verses time. With that lens on, this woman is a bit like the woman, Eve. Why is that significant? Well, because Eve was promised that one of her offspring would crush the serpent's head. That's what we were just singing in the hymn before. It's from Genesis 3.15. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. So the devil has been awaiting the day when the offspring of the woman would arise to crush him. And the devil is the next character that we meet. And we know it's the devil because we're told in verse 9. So if you look down to verse 9, and the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil, and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. So how is the devil described here? Well, he's described as a serpent with seven heads. Heads in Revelation seem to stand for wisdom on the positive side and more sort of cunning on the negative side. So the serpent really is more cunning than the other garden uh, animals of the garden. It has ten horns. Horns stand for strength and might, as we saw in chapter 5. Jesus there was pictured with seven horns. All-powerful, almighty, seven being complete. But the devil here has ten horns. Which may sound more than seven, but really in Revelation it just means a lot. He has a lot of strength, a lot of power, but he's not almighty like Jesus is. He has seven diadems, crowns on his head. The other crowns that we've met so far in Revelation have been different. The word for the crowns that we've met so far is Stephanos, and it means a victor's crown. A crown won by hard endurance. Here the word is diadema. We've just carried it over into English as an ornate crown. And it's the crown of pomp. It's the crown of all the trappings of earthly rule. The devil's crown is not a victor's crown. It's all for show. And the devil has seven of them. He epitomizes show rule. He likes to look in charge, even though really he has no true right to rule. And he casts down a third 
of the stars. That's probably a reference to fallen angels mentioned later on. Stars in Revelation usually represent angels. So in Revelation 1 verse 20, the seven stars are the seven angels of the seven churches. And a third in Revelation means a significant chunk, but not all. So Satan has a following and minions at his command. What follows then is the devil versus Christ and his people. The devil wants to devour the baby as soon as, he, as soon as he's born. Right from birth, the Lord Jesus has been under attack. Think about his early life spent in Egypt on the run from King Herod. King Herod who murdered all the baby boys in Bethlehem just to try and get him. The devil was after him from day one. But as we see, when the baby is born, the dragon doesn't, ooh, the dragon doesn't get him. Actually, the baby is taken up to the throne of God and escapes. Here we have an incredibly abridged account of Jesus' earthly life. It starts with his birth and it ends with his ascension. But that's all we get. We get the birth and we get the ascension. And we're shown though that the devil is unable to harm him. He can't get him, he escapes. What about the woman though? Well she flees into the wilderness to a place prepared by God and is nourished for 1,260 days. That's the same period that we saw last week, which we defined as the period from when Jesus first came to his second coming, the church age in which we now live. The people of God remain nourished by God until Jesus returns. There's more to this story, but we'll come back to it in point three. But can you see that this is meant as an encouragement for the church, an encouragement for us as believers? The most powerful evil force in the universe took on the Lord Jesus, and the Lord Jesus was not vanquished. The devil's plan was thwarted, and the child is taken up to heaven to rule. Our Lord is so much greater than the devil, that the devil couldn't even touch him. And he has provided protection for his people. He nourishes them in the wilderness. So if this vision was translated, so to speak, into the language of the rest of the New Testament, it would be this. The devil tried and failed to destroy Jesus. He tried and he failed. The devil was no match for our Lord Jesus. But it does leave you with a question. Wasn't the offspring of the woman not just to escape the serpent's witches, so to speak, but to crush his head? The devil was supposed to be defeated, wasn't he? Not just dodged. And so our second point, our next part of the vision. The devil is cast down. Sorry, the dragon. Spoiler alert. <laughs> the dragon uh, is cast down. Have a look at verses 7 to 11. Now war arose in heaven. Michael and his archangel, sorry, and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil, and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. 
for they loved not their lives, even unto death. The scene changes. And we see now what's going on in the heavens. Michael and his angels are fighting the dragon and his angels. <coughs> now Jehovah's Witnesses say that uh, the angel Michael here is Jesus. But as we've said numerous times before in the book of Revelation, Jesus is no angel. The book of Hebrews said he's as much superior uh, to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. He's not an angel. Michael, though, is. And he's one of only three named angels in the Bible. The other two being Gabriel, and the other one uh, being Lucifer, the devil. Michael appears in the book of Daniel and in the book of Jude. (coughs) In Daniel 10, he's an angelic prince who aids another angel to deliver his message by fighting against oppressive forces. And in Daniel 12, we're told... At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince who has charge of your people, and there shall be a time of trouble such as never been uh, uh, since there was a nation till that time. But at that time your people shall be delivered, and everyone whose name is found written in the book. Seemingly here is associated with the deliverance of God's people, especially with trouble and tribulation in mind. And we saw last time that this bit in Daniel all takes place during that 42 months, that 1,260 days, that three and a half year period that the angel tells Daniel later on. So that's him in Daniel. In Jude 9, we're told that he contended with the devil for Moses' body. So what we have here then is a fighting angel, one who takes on the devil and his forces. We could not say the same of Gabriel, let me put it that way. Gabriel delivers messages, we never see Gabriel fighting. But when we see Michael, he's fighting or contending against the devil. He's a warrior, he's not a messenger boy, so to speak. And when we look at it that way, it's not so strange that he's the one leading the fight here. The important thing though is that Michael and his angels win. There's a hymn of praise about it in verses 9 and 10, that they defeated him. The devil and his minions are cast out of heaven and are thrown down to earth. That's what we see. The devil is defeated. What is fascinating, though, is how that victory is described in verse 11. We're told in verse 11 that the victory has been won by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. There being the brothers that are mentioned in verse 10. There is a victory in heaven pictured here, but it's somehow as well a victory on earth. It seems here that the brothers, if you like, have been fighting. Believers have been fighting too. And they have overcome by the blood of Jesus and their testimony about him, even to the point of death. Now the devil is cast down here, but he's cast down by Jesus' blood and believers' faithful testimony. And that sounds a bit strange, doesn't it? But it's what we read elsewhere in the New Testament. So in Luke 10, Jesus sends out his disciples to go preach and to heal in the villages and towns up and down Israel. On their return, this is what he says. And Jesus said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. That is Jesus' description of what's happened. The tricky thing then is locating this in time. When did this happen? 
it can't be the beginning of time, because the victory is by Jesus' blood and the testimony of believers. That puts it after Jesus' death. But it can't be the very end, because the devil remains active afterwards, as we'll see. Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28 speak of Satan's fall in the past tense, looking back to the time of creation and the events surrounding the Garden of Eden. But that's what the book of Revelation does, isn't it? It takes Old Testament images to tell New Testament truths. What better image of Satan's defeat than his casting out of heaven at the beginning? And as people trust in Jesus' blood, his sacrifice on the cross, as they apply it to their lives, as they faithfully speak for Jesus and even die for Jesus, it's as if the devil is being cast out of heaven all over again. That's why Jesus can speak of it like that as the disciples go out. It's like a repeat of his fall from grace. That's why Paul can write in Corinthians to the, uh, to the Corinthians, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Christ vanquished Satan on the cross. We know that, don't we? He disarmed him and he triumphed over him on the cross. That's what Paul tells us in Colossians 2. But what we do now is apply that to our lives. Victory is possible, possible because the devil is a defeated foe. Cast out of heaven and defeated by Christ. And that's an encouragement for us as believers, isn't it? Not only that Christ has evaded the devil's attacks, but that he has decisively beaten him. And that we then can share in that victory. The devil lives on. He continues to attack believers, as we'll see in a minute, because he knows his days are numbered. He's a vanquished foe. But that still makes him a dangerous foe, like a cornered animal. But to put this simply, what we see here is that the devil is defeated. Decisively defeated. And we share in that. That's an encouragement for us. We conquer him by the blood of the Lamb. As we continue to faithfully speak of Jesus. Now you might be tempted at this point to think, well it's over then, the devil is defeated. But there is still one more point to go. The final one. The dragon still rages against the woman and her children. Let me read to you verses 12 to 17. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea. For the devil has come down to you in his great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given two wings of the great eagle, so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness, to the place where she is to be nourished for a time, times, and half a time. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to help, to the help of the woman. And the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river and the dragon that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of our offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. The devil is enraged by his defeat. And he's in a hurry because he knows his days are numbered. He's lost and he knows he's lost. 
But he's going to cause as much pain and mayhem as he possibly can before he goes. Having failed to defeat the child, he now goes after the mother. But she has given wings to fly to the relative safety of the wilderness. And she's to stay there for a time, times, and half a time. Three and a half years, 42 months, same period. So the devil tries another tack. He opens his mouth and spews forth a flood. Exactly what this river is, this flood, is up for grabs a little bit. Some see it as the lies and accusations against believers. The river comes from the dragon's mouth, as though it's spoken, it's deceit, and it's accusations which are mentioned in verses 9 and 11. Others see it as a river of blood, the killing of believers. They look back to Abel's blood in Genesis 4, where the ground of the earth is said to have opened its mouth to receive his brother's blood. Now both are true, of course, the devil pursues us in both ways. The first one, I think, though, is more likely. Because let's face it, in the book of Revelation, if you wanted to have a river of blood, you could have a river of blood, couldn't you? It wouldn't really make that much difference. But it's more likely, then, the accusations and lies against the church. In the first century, there were all sorts of lies circulating about Christians. They were atheists, believe it or not. That was the lie that went round. They were cannibals. They were sexually immoral, marrying people that they called their brothers and sisters. And lies still circulate today. We're bigots. We're hateful. We're intellectually stunted. In some countries, we're blasphemers. And the devil uses those things to discourage Christians who face those lies, whether spoken or just implied. Who face those sighs and the rolling of the eyes when Jesus is mentioned in conversation. But there are other ways the devil uses lies within the church. Part of the flood might be including the false teaching that the devil introduces into the church. Part of the flood is no doubt the onslaught of, of heresies and lies down through the ages. The destructive heresies brought in by secret that it talks about in 2 Peter. In many parts of the world it's easier to hear the message of cults and sects than it is to hear the gospel. Isn't that sad? We've had 2,000 years of breakaway groups and false teaching and it can feel like a flood sometimes. The devil uses this counterfeit Christianity to draw away believers and to trap unbelievers. But the devil also uses lies to split believers, creating division where there need not be. Where division is caused not by the truth of the gospel, but over rumours and gossip. How many families of churches have come apart because of deceit and deliberate misconstruing of the other to try and sort of demonise them? The devil sends his flood. But the woman is saved. The church ultimately is safe. The earth opens up its mouth and swallows the river of lies. The church can stand firm against the flood. There have been times, haven't there, down through history, where it's almost looked like the church could be swept away. There's been such floods of heresies and decimated by splits and schisms and nearly destroyed by scandals. But Jesus' encouraging message here to John is that all these attacks are ultimately doomed to fail. The gates of hell will not prevail against the church. 
And that's an encouragement, isn't it? As we go our day-to-day business, as we speak to people about Jesus, as we try and live for Jesus, we're involved in building something that will last. The church will never be a relic of a bygone age. The church will never be a footnote in the history book. God is at work protecting the church, nourishing it. And he has been for nearly 2,000 years. The devil cannot defeat the church. Jesus himself says, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The devil cannot win against the church. So that's it then. The devil gives up. Well, no, not quite. In fact, quite the opposite. He goes after the woman's kids. We're told who they are, those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. In other words, they're individual believers. The woman really is the church viewed as a whole. He can't defeat that any more than he could defeat Christ. So he goes after individual believers. We'll find out more about how he does this next week. He has his two pets, if you like, to do his bidding. One from the sea and one from the land, which is why he's standing on the shore. But from what we've seen so far, we already know some of his strategy, don't we? It hasn't changed in the long ages since time began. The first one is deceit and accusation. He whispers lies in believers' ears. He reminds us of our sin and tries to convince us that it cannot be forgiven. He tries to make us think that we're the only one who struggle with that. And God could never forgive me. He lies to us. He accuses us. He can't ultimately beat the woman, but he can try and harm her children. And he does so because he knows his time is short. But they are lies that he tells us. And we need to be aware of that. But to put this one simply, the dragon, or the devil, still rages against the church and believers. But whilst he still rages, everything else we've seen should give us confidence in the face of the enemy. He didn't defeat our Lord Jesus. He himself has been defeated, and ultimately we cannot be defeated. We can be encouraged by that. God is nourishing us and caring for us in this time. Martin Luther composed a hymn, not for Ruin Cathedral, but for the cathedral in Wittenberg in Germany. The hymn he wrote was this, A mighty fortress is our God. And he wrote about the devil in the third verse. This is literally, I looked at the German this week, this is literally what he says. The prince of this world, how enraged he is. I bet he was looking at this passage. It doesn't matter. He's finished. He's judged. A little word can put him down. The prince of the world, how enraged he is. It doesn't matter. He's finished. He's judged. A little word can put him down. The encouragement of our passage is that whilst the devil is real, whilst the devil is out there, we can stand against the devil. We can stand against his schemes and attack. Why? Because evil has been defeated on the cross. Jesus has done it. The devil is done for. The serpent is cast down and soon will be crushed. What we need to do is keep going. Keep testifying. Keep living for Jesus. Keep going until that day. 
and be nourished and protected by God, who is caring for us. Well, let's pray that God will give us the strength to do that this week and in the weeks to come. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that the devil could not defeat the Lord Jesus. Father, thank you that the devil is defeated. And Father, thank you that the church is protected. And Father, we pray for ourselves as individual believers who face the lies of the devil daily. Father, help us to see through them. Help us instead to keep testifying to Jesus. Keep living for him. And Father, we pray that you would nourish and protect us and help us to see through the schemes of the evil one. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.